0: good morning the reading is take our uh, readings are taken from exodus and uh, exodus chapter 12 verses 1 to 13 and then exodus chapter 13 1 to 8 the lord said to moses and aaron in the land of egypt this month shall mark for you the beginning of months It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorsteps and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the lamb that same night, they shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning You shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will ex- execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be the sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Exodus 13, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 8. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the Israelites of human beings and animals is mine. Moses said to the people, remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this observance in this month.
1: Seven days you shall eat the unleavened bread and on the seventh day there shall be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen in your possession, and no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory. You shall tell your child on that day, "It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: And uh, now we're going to have a lovely little sermonette from you as well. Simon's here. Uh,
1: Stay with us. Thank you Fifi. Well if last week's passage found its artistic resonance in the musical genius of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice this week's is surely all about DreamWorks all-star vocal cast animation The Prince of Egypt or possibly if you're of an older generation Charlton Heston Cecil B. DeMille, and the Ten Commandments. The image of enslaved Israelites marking their door lintels with blood as the angel of death passes over them to visit the houses of the Egyptians is one which is written deep in our cultural memory, just as it has been foundational for the central religious traditions of both Judaism and Christianity. This is the original Passover celebrated within Judaism as the revelation of God as one who delivers people from oppression. And it's also the origin of the Lord's Supper, the moment when Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples and revealed himself as the one who will bring deliverance from enslavement to sin and death. Our reading today gives us two stages in the Passover story, two stages in this story of the Israelites deliverance from slavery. In chapter 12, we meet the story of the Passover lamb and the blood on the door lintels. And then in chapter 13, we hear of the institution of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it is this blood and this bread that we will meet in the bread and wine that we will use as we remember the body and blood of Jesus on the cross as we celebrate communion later this morning. Communion, the Last Supper, the Passover, imagery which all ties together. Well, we'll come back to the idea of Jesus as the Passover lamb in a minute. But first, I want us to consider what for many people is a deeply troubling aspect. To this story, and this is the divine violence that lies at the heart of it. When our goddaughter was a little girl, her primary school did a series of assemblies on different religious traditions. And when they came to the story of the Passover, she came home from school that day deeply troubled. She had heard time and again from her parents and her church uh, telling her that God was a God of love. So when she encountered the story of God sending the angel of death to kill the firstborn children of the Egyptians, her concern was that as a firstborn child herself, if she had lived in ancient Egypt, would God have killed her? Well, her parents decided that this was definitely a question for her godparents. And so the next time Liz and I were around there, that question came our way. Did God kill the firstborn children, even though they had done nothing to deserve it? And might God do the same again, under similar circumstances? It's troubling, isn't it? Because it takes us right to the heart of what kind of a God do we actually worship? Well, trying to frame an answer to the question of theodicy for a seven year old is never easy. But I can remember asking our goddaughter how she would feel if she wasn't an Egyptian firstborn, but a firstborn of the Israelites. And together we remembered that earlier in the story, Pharaoh had given the order that every firstborn male Jewish baby was to be killed. And we imagined how it felt to be a Jewish slave in Egypt with no freedom and no hope and terrible hardship. And what we realised was that this story feels different when it is read from the perspective of the Jewish children than it does when it is read from the perspective of the Egyptian children. And we reflected that as those who, in global terms at least, sit more at the Egyptian end of the economic and power spectrum than the Israelite slaves, our natural tendency is to identify with the Egyptians rather than the Israelites. And as liberation theologians have consistently shown us, learning to read texts from the bottom up, amplifying the voices of the oppressed that are usually silenced, can be a way into fresh encounter with otherwise difficult stories. Well, I'm not sure that reading this text as an Israelite rather than as an Egyptian entirely excuses God's actions against the Egyptians but it certainly takes us a step towards hearing the story more helpfully. But of course, there is more to say on this than I was able to say to our goddaughter all those years ago, because of course these stories are not first-hand accounts of what God did in Egypt. These are stories told a thousand or more years later and written down by the Jews in exile in Babylon in the 7th century BC. The question to ask of the book of Exodus is not, why did God kill the firstborn Egyptians, but rather, why did this story emerge and evolve to say that God did? This is a question of theology, not history, and the answer lies in the Israelite experience of Babylonian exile. At a time when they were oppressed, enslaved, and exiled into Babylon, they told and retold this story from their prehistory, to explore the question of how it might be that God is a God who works to bring release for those who are in captivity, and judgment on those who violently cause the oppression of the righteous. But we're still not quite there. In excusing God's divine violence in this story, are we? We may have read the text from the perspective of the Israelites rather than the Egyptians, and we may have contextualised the story as a non-historical theological exploration of the Israelite experience of Babylonian exile. But God is still a character in this story, and within the story the firstborn of the Egyptians still die Just because a story isn't historical doesn't mean it doesn't have to answer for its assertions. And here we come to the heart of the issue, which crops up for us again and again as we read through Scripture. Do we accept that God is violent or do we not? And I want to suggest that here we find ourselves back at the story of Jesus and the events of the Last Supper. The images of blood and bread from the Passover story become the blood and body of Jesus, soon to be broken on the cross. The question of divine violence is as much present in the story of the cross as it is in the story of the Passover. Putting it bluntly, does God kill the firstborn? Jesus on the cross. Or is something else going on there? Well, there are certainly many Christians who would want to indeed assert that God kills Jesus on the cross. The logic known as the theory of substitutionary atonement runs as follows. The wages of sin is death, and we all sin, so we all deserve death. But God wants to grant us eternal life, so Jesus dies in our place, as God's wrath at human sin is placed on him. There was some considerable controversy a few years ago about one line in that otherwise magnificent hymn, In Christ Alone, which has lost its place in several hymn books because of the author's unwillingness to allow a change to their text. The line that causes the problems is this one. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. None other than Tom Wright, the doyen of thinking evangelicals and former bishop of Durham, has said that in his view, this line should be changed to this. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was satisfied. And indeed, many congregations just sing this alternative version anyway. I don't think anyone's been taken to court for it yet. Well, I don't want to get into a discussion on the legalism of copyright legislation, but I do note that at stake here is a key question regarding who we think God is. Does God visit his wrath on Jesus on the cross, killing him to satisfy his wrath or not? Is God a God of violence or is God not? Well, for my money, this view of a violent God is inadequate. And I don't think that the cross is about God violently killing Jesus in anger at human sin. I think the cross is about God in Jesus reaching into the depths of human suffering unto death to redeem all those who suffer the violence caused by human sin. God did not crucify Jesus. The Romans did. And in this, we catch a glimpse of God in Jesus, whose response to suffering is to embrace those who suffer and redeem those who are enslaved. And so we're back to Babylon and to Egypt, both stories from our inherited faith tradition that show God at work to bring release and redemption. And so I want to suggest one further rereading of this story, where we read it not as Israelite children, nor as Jewish exiles, nor even as historical critics, I want us to read this story through the lens of God's revelation in Jesus. God in Jesus is never violent towards the innocent and is always angry at oppression. And the violence of human history, by this reading, is always the consequence of human sin. And I want to suggest this includes the suffering of the Israelite children in Egypt. Empires that oppose God's kingdom of love are always destined for destruction. They cannot last. And those who embrace violence in their quest for domination contain within the violence that they mete out on others what will become the seeds of their own violent demise? However powerful violent empires may become, they are always going to reap what they have sown in the end. Those who sow the wind will reap the whirlwind, as the prophet Hosea put it. Reading the story of the Passover as a theological exploration of the futile attempts of human empires to destroy God's inbreaking eternal kingdom but taking our understanding of God's action from the revelation of God in Jesus takes us to a place of hope, where those who seek to destroy God's kingdom, whether through enslavement of his people or the execution of his son, are ultimately destined for failure. The death of the Egyptians is a consequence of the Egyptian empire's actions, as their empire fails in the light of God's constant actions to bring release for those who are enslaved. Ultimately I would want to suggest that on the cross as Jesus died the love of God was not just satisfied but magnified. And as we come towards the Lord's table to encounter Jesus as the Passover lamb through his broken body and his shed blood Let's focus our worship on the one who came to redeem captives and to bring peace to those trapped in violence.
2: Thank you very much, Simon, for such a thought-provoking sermonette. Um, We are going to go into a little bit of discussion now, but beforehand I would just like to have a moment of quiet reflection um, as we think about uh, the, like what we have just had. So let's have a moment of silence now. If I can ask uh, Tommaso and Andrea um, and everyone to unmute and say, hi. <laughs> um, what did you guys, uh, what are your first thoughts from the discussion today? Tommaso, you're unmuted.
3: Uh, yeah. Hi. Um, well, first of all, thanks Simon for this uh, thoughtful sermon. Um, well, I'm, I don't know whether this is um, off topic or not, but um, while while reading the the Bible passage and listening to the sermon, my my first thought was uh, how frequently uh, we we tend to uh, find in ev- in events happening to other people, particularly people we disagree or or with or 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 fight against or criticize for some reason evidence of the fact that God is on our side uh, not not that we are on the side of God but but rather the other way around and and how this might lead to um, i think a, a pretty dangerous line line of thought um, we i mean i I think we should always be very careful in, in believing that bad things happening to others are um, evidence of God's punishment. And, uh, and I think what, what I found particularly fascinating and striking about what Simon's uh, Goddaughter uh, did was to put herself into the shoes of somebody else, on putting herself in the shoes of, of, of people from the other side. And if you see the story from the other side, we, we might read differently. And, and this change of perspective matters. And, and this is pro- probably something we should do as well. Whenever we, we fall into the temptation of thinking, oh, uh, this is happening because uh, God is with us, or, you know, and, 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 and that's, that's something we should resist.
4: Yeah, I was, um, <laughs> it's funny, because I was thinking about the, like, the other side of the coin of what you just said, of when people read this kind of passage, and then they feel like they're, they're gonna do God's work, um through whatever means, like violence, most of all, um, and <laughs> the problem is Christians do that, non-Christians do that, like, What's the difference if everyone does God's work through violence? Mm. And we can even take this a step further. And it doesn't have to be physical violence. It's all the psychological violence that Christians have done through centuries of telling people, you're not good enough. You're not welcome here. You're not one of us. And I really find it hard to believe now after spending all this time with Bloomsbury that that is... The God I want to believe in. I think, yeah, (laughs) I think it was a very useful exercise to do what you just said, Simon, and try to see things from a different perspective, and realize that God is not a monster that's also loving and then that you have to be afraid of. Yeah, thank you,
2: Andrea. Thank you, Tomasa. Um, just. Going off what you said, Maso, I was really just uh, struck with the kind of like God is on our side or we are on the side of God and I was just thinking about how it says in the reading how people have to like still be wearing their shoes, still be dressed, still be holding their stuff when they're eating and things like that and that makes it seem it's not like they're having a party and being like ha ha they got him and all of this stuff like that like i think about how also the israelites are going to be feeling about this i don't feel like they're going to be like celebrating and being like uh you know ah god got you kind of thing like i definitely feel like because the egyptians and uh, the israelites were living together and like I feel like there would still be so much sorrow in the community um even if there was like some things and then like people feeling guilt like why didn't I not tell them to put red on their, put the blood on their door and and stuff like that I think that it's such a horrible situation to be in but then a lot of people they always kind of see this as a kind of eye for an eye like view but it's just that everyone is suffering really um, yeah that's just what I thought. Um, has anyone else got any uh, anything any thoughts about this? Martin you haven't said anything yet <laughs> I think you're still muted. Are you still muted
0: hey, better. I'm not doing well this morning. Uh, apologies for um, uh, getting cut off earlier. Um, intriguingly, when when practicing uh, the, the reading, um, I was struck by the the the, the violence of the piece. Um, not not only, also as a vegetarian, it was actually quite hard to read <laughs> um, uh, read it through initially. But I think what I didn't you know get the opportunity to read out was actually the, the last, um, before I got cut off, was about it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And I would, when I was reading it through, there was something of hope um, that came um, that came through to me at the end of the story. And it was interesting hearing Simon's take, that hope coming through, that, this, that there's something about the God who comes in and brings us through. And this what feels like the violent journey, the violence is there. Um, and for many of us who have experienced slavery of different forms, it is it, it the, the toughness of the journey out. But there is that that hope, and there is something of that hope um, in this for me, um, of, of finding strength within, to come through and out of slavery. So it's it, slightly different from, I guess, from, for, from where Simon was coming from, but it was the, the the feeling of hope that came through to me in the re- in, in reading it and then listening to Simon at the end and God's redemption coming through um, to us. Hope that makes some sense.
2: Thank you very much, Martin. Um, does I, oh Simon, you've just unmuted yourself?
1: Yeah, I just something I think. Um, what, one of the conversations we have from time to time is whether Christians should be non-violent or not. And, you know, it's not clear cut. There are plenty of um, arguments out there for Christians engaging in just war and, you know, sending peacekeeping forces in to use violence. So, um, you know, there are there are good arguments for why Christians can support the use of violence under certain circumstances. And then there are other good arguments that say Christians should themselves model themselves after Jesus and be non-violent towards creation and to humans and that should be a founding kind of principle and I know Bloomsbury over many years now has taken the non-violent position on this and and we we light the peace candle on a Sunday when we meet in the church as an expression of our commitment to the way of peace and I do think it boils down to what God we believe in. Um, I had a fascinating conversation with somebody several years ago where I was arguing that God is a God of non-violence and that that leads to our, violent, to our non-violence. And this person said, no, we can only be non-violent as Christians if we know that God is going to punish people on our behalf. So. Uh, I just, you know, it really is interesting that this interplay between our ethical choices and the God we believe in and and how those two drive each other. So I I it's not a fully formed thought and it wasn't part of the sermon but I just thought it was an interesting kind of thought to to build perhaps on some of what was being said already.
2: Yeah that is kind of amazing Simon, thanks for sharing that. I had this in mind, this like kind of that's such a like football hooligan way of thinking uh, about uh, God. A lot of people, they say that football hooligans are violent because you can't be violent on the pitch when you're fighting for the players or things like that. So it's very like, that God is going to do, Oh God will do something to them. I think that's very negative energy. It's still violent. Um, uh, Let's, see there has been a lot of stuff going on in the chat um i can't really see people's names let me just uh let me just expand this chat um okay liz has just said i think sometimes it feels like we are excusing god we want to assert that god is not a god of violence So these passages are so hard, yet it is important to struggle with them, not just hide them. The church has used and misused these kind of passages over time and it means that we can end up in a deep hidden belief that God is really not that nice. We want to believe it's different, but we are still slaves to our old view of God. I agree with Martin, we need to look for that hope we need to recognize how we feel admit it believe God is big enough be willing to see things from a different perspective yes definitely thank you for that Liz Um, we also have uh, Jeff has a few messages for us there's quite a lot there so I think if anybody uh, wants to read that in the chat and like have a really nice discussion I think afterwards as well we can continue this discussion Um, uh, and uh, yes, God is ultimately forgiving, not punishing. Very true. Um, so thank you, everyone, for, for uh, being with us through that discussion. That was really, really insightful. Thank you. Um, we will now have our prayers of intercession from Tommaso.
3: Let us pray. Almighty and generous god We bring before you this morning Our hopes and our worries Our dreams and our nightmares And our fallible knowledge Tempered by the awareness of our limitations Our blindness and our ignorance As societies all over the world have a hard time in coping with the pandemic, and look for new ways of living aimed at protecting the most vulnerable, we ponder the decisions we face and seek to draw strength from your wisdom, your love, and your power over sin. While refusing to surrender to fear, may we be reminded every day of the moral imperative to care for our neighbors and of the faithful impact that our seemingly innocent actions may have on the lives of others. Enlightened by science, fortified by faith, may we fully appreciate the implications stemming from the fact that we are all connected, all bound together And therefore, mutually responsible for the collective fate of humankind. And may we recall how unbelievably destructive human conduct can be when people, under the grip of unhealthy passions, do things knowing not what they do. Loving God, we pray for those who are experiencing moral psychological, and physical suffering or deprivation, regardless of their status, their class, their age, their wealth, their nationality, their religion, their gender, or their views. Being creators of God, may they find comfort in the insight that evil, like the Egyptians in the Exodus, will sooner or later lie dead upon the seashore. Loving God, we pray for those who being in better shape, less afflicted by pain or need, may find it hard to feel sympathy for their brothers and sisters in trouble, be apathetic about their predicament, and succumb to self-worship and a false sense of security. May they remember that you gave us all the interior resources to endure the tribulations of life but also the ability to use them to lift the burdens of others finally we pray for ourselves deep down in our hearts we know that we too are not immune from these temptations and failings we too struggle to live up to the words of the lord to your message of universal compassion and inclusion. May we permit the energy of God to come into our souls and set us free, for, as Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Amen.